ahead and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, in many ways, as we've looked at the Ephesian church as presented by Paul in 1 Timothy, in many ways the church at Ephesus was dysfunctional. I don't think that's an overstatement. There were elders and leaders engaging in speculation and fruitless discussions which resulted in false teaching, strange doctrines, myths, and forms of legalism. There was wrath and dissension. If you remember, some of the men were fighting with each other. Paul called on them to pray as a way to overcome some of that. We had some of the women that were behaving and dressing improperly, immodestly. There was a problem with leadership and authority in the church, with women taking on leadership roles and exercising authority over men, which the Bible does not permit. Individuals were apparently serving as elders and deacons that weren't qualified. That would explain why Paul has to go through the list of qualities and qualifications for deacons and elders. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, some of those elders and and leaders and teachers were using their positions of authority as a means for financial gain. They were attempting to get rich. And so when you look at the Ephesian church, it was somewhat dysfunctional. In fact, Paul left Timothy there, we're told, primarily for correcting two primary issues. One of them was false teaching. But the other was to put in place a mechanism, if you will, or a way to help teach and to grow these people so that they would learn to behave themselves appropriately, he says, in the household of God. And so Timothy was left there for correcting two primary issues, the false teaching and the inappropriate behavior for Christians. And in all likelihood, it had a lot to do with when they would come together in their service, but much like you would expect, they probably did more than just simply getting together to worship. They shared meals together, they fellowshiped together, and as a body of believers of a local church, they just weren't behaving and acting the way that they should, and again, there was a lot of dysfunction. Now, as you can imagine, that would put Timothy in a position where he would have to do some confrontation because he'd have to address these individuals. In fact, he makes it very, Paul makes it very clear in the letter that he is to confront these individuals. But as you can imagine, sometimes that might go very well and at other times probably not so well. We all know what it's like with confrontation, either when we have confronted others or when others have confronted us. It doesn't always go as we expect or as we would plan. In fact, Paul himself struggled with this. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Paul has to mention a couple of individuals that he had to confront that didn't respond very well to his confrontation. He gives us their names. He says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He mentions another one, Philetus, as he gets to 2 Timothy. But among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Apparently, when Paul confronted these two individuals, they didn't respond too well. And Paul saw as the only solution there to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that they wouldn't learn to blaspheme. Now I want you to look at something. Jump over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
Paul mentions another one of these individuals. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Jump down to verse 14. He mentions one of these individuals again. He says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on your guard against him, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Paul had to confront Alexander. Alexander apparently, in his response to Paul, did Paul much harm. We don't know what that is. Probably in his ministry, may have maybe tarnished Paul's reputation. Maybe he said things about Paul that weren't appropriate. He might have gathered individuals after him. We know that in other places, as Paul would confront the unsaved, they would often run him out of the town. But what we're dealing with primarily here is the concept of confrontation as it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, according to the Bible, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to confront believers over sin. And that's going to be the topic of our passage today. Confrontation, a right way and a wrong way. I'm going to start with an example of the wrong way. One from my own life. Now I could probably use myself as an example of confronting somebody in the wrong way. But rather than embarrass myself, Dustin's back laughing, I'm going to share an example where somebody confronted me in a wrong way. And it's one I may have shared with you in the past. When I was pastoring my first church here in Ohio, I had a couple of individuals that did music for us. They were sort of rough around the edges, but they were good musicians and they loved to serve. And so they were um, our worship team, if you will. And uh, one of the things that became real apparent week after week is that um, they would complain a little bit sometimes about how busy it always was and how they kind of needed a break. And so I played guitar and so I would offer to give them a break at times. But they would say, no, 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 that's our job. And they would just do it. But they would complain on occasion. Well, it came time for, I think it was our one year or two year anniversary. I don't remember exactly what it was. So I thought, you know, I've got a lot of friends that all wanted to come down and help. A lot of them were musicians. And so they had offered, hey, can we come down and do the music for you guys as a way of letting all of you sit and just enjoy. We thought this would be a great way to celebrate this church. So I approached this couple and I said, here's the thing. We've got all these friends that want to come down. They'd love to give you a break. You know, you've kind of complained in in that because, you know, you never get a chance just to sit. So here's an opportunity. Would you like them to come down and do this? And they were like, absolutely. But I know them well enough. So I would remind them on occasion as we were getting ready to come. Okay, if you want to do this, I don't want to take that away from you, but... These friends of mine are offering, and you've said you would like them to do that, and they were like, yeah, no, that'd be perfect. We would love that. We, we can sit and not have to be involved. In we can just sit and enjoy the celebration service. So that's what we did. We seemed to go, I played. My friends of mine all played, and they sat down in the church and just enjoyed the time, right? I don't, I don't know. Was it the following Sunday, Amy? I don't know. But um, after a church service, I was confronted the man was about this tall. He's taller than me. Long hair, beard. A little rough around the edges, you know. Um, and he got about six inches from my face. Red. Fists clenched. Just shaking. And he was mad. I'm like, uh, oh, what's the problem? 
what he was mad about was that I took an opportunity away from him. They had put their heart and soul into this church and how that should have been their Sunday. The celebration, they should have done the music. And I don't remember his exact words, but something along the lines of he wanted to punch me in the face. Now, I think, Amy, you were standing off to the side, if I remember a little bit, you know. I did my best to talk him off the ledge. He didn't punch me in the face. I reminded him very gently that, look, I gave you every opportunity. You agreed to this. That is the wrong way to confront somebody. We don't go up to somebody red in the face, hands clenched, saying, I'm going to pop you in your nose. That's just not the way that we're supposed to do it as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul instructs Timothy on the right way to confront others in the church. What he shares is a fairly simple principle. It's one that's laid out throughout the scriptures as a whole. When he does this, it follows on the heels of everything else that he's mentioned. But one of the things he did in our passage last week was he talked to Timothy about being an example for believers. And one of the ways that Timothy would be an example within his church would be to confront individuals appropriately. How often have we, have we heard and seen, learned about, people in positions of authority abuse that authority, don't respond correctly. It happens within the church as well. There have been a number of pastors of some large evangelical churches that have been booted out of their churches primarily for abusing their authority and not treating people under their care appropriately when they disagree with them. And so Paul provides some instructions to Timothy on how he is supposed to do this, and it includes being an example on how to confront Now, before we can do that, though, and you'll notice our passage is only two verses today, which means we're going to spend a lot of time in other passages as well. The outline for this morning is going to be this. First, we're going to look at the need for confrontation. There's a need and an obligation for confrontation. Next, we're going to look at the goals of confrontation. Why do we confront? Why should we confront? That's going to be, both of those are going to be outside the book of 1 Timothy. Then we're going to come into our passage for this morning in just these two verses and we're going to look at the practice of confrontation. How do we do it? And we'll start in 1 Timothy with these two verses because Paul deals with one principle. But we're going to go outside of that again and we're going to look at five principles, only one of which Paul mentions here. But there are five principles I'll provide for us on the practice of confrontation. So we're going to look at the need of confrontation, the goal of confrontation, and then the practice of confrontation. All right? Let's go ahead and... Dive into it here. The need for confrontation is based on one very simple fact. Can anybody tell me what that fact is? Why is there a need for confrontation within the church? God, she nailed it. Because we sin. That's the reality of it, right? And because we sin, and because we don't always deal with sin on our own, sometimes it requires that people address us or confront us or talk to us about us about it one of the roles is the holy one of the roles of the holy spirit is to confront the world on sin righteousness and judgment and that i would argue even applies to believers turn to john chapter 16 in some of these verses this morning we're going to cover more than once because we're going to come back to them but john chapter 16 
Listen to what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage, believers, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he will, or and he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So what Jesus basically does here establishes the fact that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and righteousness. And he says it convicts the world. When it comes to the unsaved, it's going to convict the unsaved world of their sin. But notice he's talking to believers here and he talks about the Holy Spirit coming as a helper. I'm one who believes that the helper also convicts us of sin and convicts us of righteousness as well. God has given us a conscience. As we grow and mature in Christ and our mind becomes more like Christ, we should just, on that alone, recognize when we sin and do something about it. But that doesn't always happen, and so the Holy Spirit has been given to us to act as a helper, which means that he will point out sin in our lives and then give us the power, the authority, the tools to be able to overcome that sin. But one of his roles is to convict, and that applies to believers as well. I'll ask for a show of hands here, but how many of you in your own life have sensed that at times, where maybe you've done something, and you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit indicating to you that something isn't quite as it should be. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. However, it seems that we don't always listen to, and we don't always submit to that, do we? How many of you, and don't have to raise your hands on this one, have found yourselves at times feeling convicted, but... You know, you don't necessarily want to submit to that. There's still the flesh that's, that's fighting against the spirit. Remember who Paul says, spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Sometimes the flesh just doesn't want to do what the Holy Spirit is convicting us to do. And that is the time where maybe we need a kick in the pants by somebody. Somebody to approach us, to confront us. You know, what's interesting is the Bible actually commands us to confront one another. Do you know that? actually commands us to. Turn to Luke chapter 17. We'll start with Jesus' words, Luke chapter 17. And this is the passage we'll come back to in a little bit. But Luke chapter 17, verse 3. We'll start in verse 1. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that, or then, then he would be, or that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And he says this, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, it's another believer, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, you might add to that, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, since he says, if he sins, you need to rebuke him, and then if he repents, you forgive. Well, if he's going to sin against you seven times, that may mean there's more opportunity for rebuke there, too. But the reality of it is, Jesus himself says that if your brother sins, rebuke him. That's the idea of confrontation. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. You're all familiar with this passage. Matthew chapter 18. We'll jump down to verse 15. 
Jesus starts the same way. If your brother sins, another believer, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two uh, more with you, meaning witnesses, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if your brother sins, it's, uh, it's time to have to confront. And he says here to do that in private. One of the first questions I ask when somebody approaches me and says, I've got a problem with so-and-so, or somebody did this, are you going to deal with them? My first response is, have you dealt with them? That's what Jesus commanded. It has to start with you. You can't drag me into it until a couple steps in the process here. But Jesus says, if a brother sins, rebuke him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Notice how he starts there? Admonish. It's the idea of confrontation. Admonish the one who is unruly, behaving in a way that is inappropriate within the church. One last one we'll touch on here. Galatians chapter 6. We'll come back to all four of these passages in a little bit. But Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Basically, what he starts off with there is when you see somebody caught in a sin, it says to restore them. There's confrontation necessary in that. When somebody's caught in sin, our goal should be to approach them. It means that we're engaging in a form of confrontation. So we're obligated to confront one another. Each one of these passages not only tells us that there's a need to confront because believers do sin and they don't always respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They don't always behave appropriately. So there's a need to confront. But what we saw in each one of these passages is that it's an obligation that we have to one another as believers. That's the reality. So we're obligated when it's necessary. Now there are two extremes I believe that we should avoid when it comes to confrontation. The first extreme is those who refuse to confront. Sometimes it's because we don't like conflict. Anybody here doesn't like conflict? We'll get to you that really like it a little bit later here. I've shared a story before maybe from my first church I pastored in Indiana. There was a young boy in the church who was quite troubled. He had a very passive, I call it a very passive father, meaning dad did not like confrontation with his son, ever, no matter what the issue was. And he had come to me on a couple of occasions and asked for some counsel and some help on dealing with his son who was running afoul of, of some things and the law and some other things. 
And so we, me and a couple other elders gave him counsel as to how to deal with his son. And one of the things we told him was, look, you know, you are a passive parent. You don't confront your child over inappropriate behavior and you need to start learning. He's 13. You don't have much time left before you can establish who the authority is in your family and dealing with some of this behavior. Well, one particular morning he came into church and he was just, the dad, was just crushed emotionally. He was in tears. His son had come home the day before, took a hockey stick and broke out every window in the house, including a large triple pane bay window, which are those windows you have sometimes in your family room or your living room. And so he sits down, he's in tears. And so I asked him, I said, um, how did he get to the second window? And he's like, he was angry. I'm like, no. How did he get from the first window after breaking it to the second window? And he's like, because he was angry. He's got anger issues. So I had him stand up. And the guy was taller than me, and he weighed about 300 pounds. His son was maybe 140. And so I stood next to him and I said, do you think you could physically stop me? <laughs> if I came to your home with a hockey stick and started smashing windows, he said, well, yes. I said, then why didn't you do this with your son? And his response was, I don't like confrontation. I don't like confrontation. As a result, the child went on to continue doing the kinds of things that he had always done, totally out of control. So sometimes we avoid confrontation because we just don't like conflict. At other times, it's because we don't feel it's our place. Well, who am I to judge? Oh, I'm not perfect. How can I address this when, you know, I'm a sinner too? And so sometimes it's not because we don't like confrontation, but we just, we're so humble, you know. It's not my place. I don't remember Jesus saying, when you see a brother sin, and as long as you're perfect then you can confront. So sometimes it's because we just, you know, who am I? You know, One of my favorite ones is, I'm not the Holy Spirit, which I'm not going to argue with, but you know where that's getting. Sometimes we don't confront because we're afraid of the response or the reaction. We all know people who, boy, man, you set them off. Like I said, I was standing in front of my music guy who apparently had an anger issue I was unaware of. You know? So sometimes we don't like confrontation because they're a lit fuse and we don't want to have to deal with it. I'm going to go as far as to say sometimes we don't confront simply because we don't care. We don't care about our fellow believers caught in sin. It's a harsh thing to say, but sometimes that's the reality of it. We don't love them enough to confront them. So that's the one extreme. Not being willing to confront. The opposite extreme is those who love to confront. And they'll confront over anything. Do you know people like that? They're rebel. They love confrontation. You notice the Bible doesn't tell us to confront others simply over things we don't like, things we disagree with, necessarily differences of opinion. Unfortunately, we probably all know people who love this idea of confrontation and they see it as their spiritual gift to confront whenever they disagree with you. I know some. In fact, I know quite a few. Before we confront someone and accuse them of sin, we ought to be able to identify the sin biblically. If we can't do that, we shouldn't be confronting. And there are some who have great difficulty in doing that. 
They'll confront simply because they don't like what you're doing or they disagree with what you're doing or they say I have some difference of opinion with you. I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago as I was driving down to Dayton and we talked about this very thing here and the one thing I continued to challenge him on was if you can't identify it biblically as a sin, how can you confront somebody over it? Because if you're confronting somebody simply because you think it's your role and you think it's your spiritual gift, we've got a problem here. So you have these two extremes. Either not confronting, for whatever reason, or always confronting, and confronting for the wrong reasons. Somewhere in the middle of that is biblical confrontation. And that's where there is sin involved, it's a brother or sister in Christ, and they need our help. And we are obligated and we are called. So the first thing we see here is this obligation or the need for confrontation. So it moves us on to the goal of confrontation. What is the goal of confrontation or even goals, plural? There isn't really just one goal of confrontation. I mentioned some of them. We're going to look at a couple of those same passages because we see the goals of confrontation in some of those passages we already covered. Luke chapter 17, verse 3, again. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then the very next phrase is this. And if he repents, forgive him. So one of the goals of confrontation is to bring about repentance. To bring about repentance. So that you might then offer forgiveness. A second goal Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 again. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And then, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So the goal there is to mend a broken relationship. And that's twofold. When you have a brother or sister caught in sin, they're in a broken relationship with Christ. And so the goal ought to be to help them to mend or to fix, to restore that broken relationship, Jesus says. But it also is a mending of the relationship between two believers. Because sin doesn't just push us from Christ, it pushes us away from other believers. It causes conflict. And so a second goal of confrontation is to restore broken relationships between the believer and his God and between us. A third goal is to address unruly or divisive behavior within the church. Isn't that really why, think about when you deal with your children in the home, one of the reasons we discipline, one of the reasons we confront our children when they sin in the home is for their own benefit, right? But it's also to maintain a home that is not unruly. We all know people probably that have homes that are totally, total chaos and out of control. And so confrontation is necessary sometimes to maintain good standards of behavior within the church family so that things aren't unruly and out of control. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Remember, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But he says, admonish those who are unruly within the church. Titus chapter 3, this is a verse we haven't covered yet, but I'll just read it to you. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man. That's a form of confrontation. A factious man is one who causes division within the church. There's no place for that within God's church. So Paul tells Titus, reject the factious man, 
after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now that's the harshest form of confrontation, where you finally have to sort of throw down the gauntlet and say, this is the way it is. You are being rejected. You are being removed from the church family. Even Matthew 18 says that a time may come where an individual believer who refuses to repent... When he's confronted by an individual he's sinning against, when you take two other believers with him that can see the behavior, you take him to the church and he refuses to listen, Jesus says, treat him like an outsider. And so, another reason for confrontation is to deal with unruly or divisive behavior within the church where there is no place for that. Believe it or not, in some situations there's a fourth goal. And this is a rather interesting one. Fourth goal of confrontation might be to save another believer from death. Think about that for a moment. Turn to James chapter 5, verse 19. He makes a rather interesting statement. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, in other words, sins, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now some would say, well, he must be talking about unsaved people here. But the context of this letter, James is talking to believers within the church. He tells them earlier to confess their sins one another so they might be healed. He deals with the situation here where there are people within the church that are sick because of their sin, and he says, call the elders of the church. But then he says, if there is sin involved, and they repent, they'll be healed. I believe James is talking here about believers saying that there are some believers who get so caught up in sin that they may die. That's something that's hard, a hard concept for, get a, for us to get our heads around, but you don't have to turn here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions believers in the Corinthian church who were so abusing their time of fellowship together during the Lord's Supper that some were sick, and Paul says, some had even died as a result of their sin during that time. And so sometimes we need to confront because somebody is so caught up in sin that it may actually put their physical lives in danger. may make them physically sick. I know some people who have been so caught up in sin that it made them physically sick. I don't know that I've ever known somebody that got so bad that they died as a result of it, but what the scriptures tell us is that it is possible. And so there are times where we confront because somebody is so caught up in sin that their lives may be in jeopardy, their health may be in jeopardy. We know of Ananias and Sapphira, don't we? Who so sinned that God took their lives. Paul mentions handing over Hymenaeus and Alexander for the destruction of their flesh. I think he's talking about physical death or at least some form of significant physical challenges and ailments brought about by Satan to turn their hearts back and cause them to repent. And if they do not, where might they end up? Physically. So a fourth goal of confrontation might be to save another believer from death. Now one of the threads that runs through all of these passages is the concept of restoration. Restoration. I would say that is the number one goal. All these other goals come alongside that and ultimately hopefully lead to the one ultimate goal of of, um, confrontation which is restoration. When somebody is confronted over sin and they repent 
It leads to restoration with God. It leads to restoration with other believers. And it leads to, leads to restoration within the church. So, as we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll see what Paul does with all of this. We've, we've seen that there's a need and an obligation to confront We've seen that there are goals to confrontation. The first and foremost, most important one, is the idea of restoring a believer in their relationship with God and their relationship with other people and their relationship with the local church. So as we get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, these two verses here, we're now going to look at the practice of confrontation. How do we confront fellow believers? I'm going to lay out five principles that exemplify the practice of biblical confrontation. The first one is right here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I'll read that for you. Paul writes to Timothy, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So the first principle of confrontation we'll take from this passage this morning. And it's this, that we should appeal rather than sharply rebuke. When we feel the need to confront somebody over sin, we ought to appeal to them rather than sharply rebuke them. This word sharply here, um, I think we probably get a pretty good picture as to what that means in our head. This idea of rebuking somebody means to express strong disapproval for something. It's to basically call them out on behavior that's inappropriate. Usually the word rebuke kind of conjures up ideas of criticizing somebody for their inappropriate or unacceptable behavior. Um, There are a variety of Greek words that are translated as rebuke in the New Testament. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples here. Some simply refer to pointing out improper or unacceptable behavior, which we're supposed to call out. Sometimes there are stronger words that refer to admonishment or chastisement. That sort of takes it up a little step, you know. Then there's words like the one Paul uses here, which is more of the improper side of confrontation. When he says here to sharply rebuke, it's used in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus' disciples were scolding people. So the word Paul uses here, this idea of sharply rebuke, is an anti-biblical thing. So even though the concept of rebuke is found throughout the scriptures, when Paul says do not sharply rebuke, he's telling us that's an inappropriate way to confront somebody. It does have this idea of scolding somebody. When the disciples scolded the woman who poured out that perfume. I have a friend of mine that um, referred to me as how when he was in college, his mother would still scold him as a college student. And he was very clear about what he meant by that, how it would make him feel like a little child. We know what that's like. There's no place for that. He says, don't sharply rebuke, don't scold when it comes time to confront. Instead, he says, appeal to them. And notice he uses this familial language here, this language of the family. He says, do not sharply rebuke. Do not scold an older man. Instead, appeal to him as a father. We know what that's like. The Bible tells us to what? Honor our father and mother, right? That position of authority is supposed to be treated a certain way. And so we shouldn't rebuke or scold, but older individuals we should appeal to. This actually means to request or to plead earnestly for something. It's almost a form of begging. 
And so he says to do this with older men as if they are the fathers. He's Notice he says here that when it comes to having to confront older women, he says we're to do it as if they were our own mothers. When it comes to a, I say a horizontal relationship, another brother in Christ, it says to do just that, to appeal to them as brothers. How about the younger women? It says to appeal to them as sisters. He adds this little phrase in all purity there. I'm not really sure why he does that when it deals with the women, but maybe because there may have been some men as they had mistreated women weren't always appropriate towards them, and so he warns Timothy about that. But the concept here is he says, we should not scold or sharply rebuke, but we should instead we should appeal, and we should appeal to them as if they are family. You know, I've reminded my own kids of this sometimes. Out of all the relationships we have, the family relationship should be the one where we are the most tender. Is that not true? Whether it's towards our parents, or whether it's to our children, whether it's to our wives. And so the first principle that we're given here is that we should appeal rather than scold or sharply rebuke a believer when they're sinning. How about the second principle? second principle of confrontation is that we are to correct with gentleness. Paul has something else to say about Timothy. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 2. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to jump down into verses 24 through 26. The second principle, again, is that we are to correct with gentleness. Chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant, he's saying, You, Timothy, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now think about this for a moment. These men that were teaching false things, misleading the church, Paul had, or Timothy had to confront them over the garbage that they were teaching. They were also men, we find out in 2 Timothy, that had been going in and taking advantage of women. We don't, it's not a, probably a sexual thing there, but probably more developing followers and manipulating them in their homes. And so they were involved with some nefarious activity. They were pursuing wealth. And so, I can imagine Timothy wanting to set them on fire. I'll deal with this. But instead, Paul says, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind and be gentle. Because he tells us the goal there is that they might experience repentance. They might come to a knowledge of the truth. He also says here that they're to correct And that idea of correction means to provide instruction. Biblical confrontation always should include not just saying what's wrong, but saying what's right. In other words, you need to replace that sinful behavior with some righteous behavior. We always did that with our own kids. Catch them doing something wrong. It wasn't enough just to say, that's wrong! Stop doing it! This is what you should do. Don't do this. Do this instead. Stop doing the bad stuff. Start doing the good stuff. Stop sinning. Try to be righteous. So the idea is that they would be corrected. 
So that second principle is that we correct with gentleness. Explain what's wrong with what they're doing. Why it's unpleasing to Christ. And then what would be a better response? What would be something that would please Christ? And to do it with gentleness. So that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. If you don't share the truth with them, they won't come to the truth. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, it says, you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. Those who know and understand and are mature. The next two principles come from probably the most important passage on confrontation. Galatians chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 6. This third principle of confrontation is that our goal should be restoration, not punishment. Restoration, not punishment. Chapter 6, Galatians, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The goal should be restoration. And so this third principle of confrontation should be that we seek restoration, not punishment. I hated using that term punishment with our kids as we would discipline them because we weren't interested in punishment. We were interested in them having their behavior corrected, their behavior changed. What we ultimately wanted was restoration between us and them and ultimately them and Christ. And so this third principle tells us that we ought to be seeking restoration, not punishment. If we are stopping at punishment, we've done a disservice to them and to Christ. Plain and simple. We see the same principle in Matthew 18. Remember, he says, If he, the one who sinned, listens to you, you have won your brother. That's what it's all about. When Jesus tells them in Matthew 18 how to handle somebody sinning against them, he puts the emphasis on restoration, not punishment. He could have said, go out there and just let them have it. Double barrel. They deserve it. They sinned against you. But instead, he says, you might have won your brother if they repent. Second Timothy chapter 2 passage says, perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the goal, is we want repentance. We want forgiveness. And so when we have to confront somebody in the church, if our motives are to punish, if our motives are to embarrass, if our motives are simply to call them out, we've done a disservice. Now we're guilty of sin. Because the goal ought to be the restoration. Fourth principle, we should do it with humility. Look back at Galatians chapter 6. It says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, when we confront, we ought to be looking at our own selves first. Bear one another's burdens, it says. Notice that's in the context of confronting somebody over sin. You know what that means? Help them. When you confront them, and you're seeking restoration, you're gentle with them, you ought to be, your mind ought to be set on helping them, bearing their burden. Help them deal with whatever it is they're dealing with that has led them to the sin. Thereby, he says, fulfill the law of Christ. 
If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's in the context of confrontation. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. What's the point here? Anytime you confront somebody, you ought to be looking at yourself first. Now, when somebody says, I can't confront because I'm a sinner, that's not what the Bible says. It says, when you confront, examine yourself first. So, if I see somebody doing something that is sinful, I'm concerned about the relationship with Christ, before I should approach them, I should say, huh, where do I sit with that? Am I right with the Lord on that? And if I'm not, I need to correct that first. Then I can approach. I don't have to be perfect, but I've got to deal with it appropriately myself. Now, if I'm guilty of the exact same sin, maybe I'm not the right one to confront the individual. Maybe what I ought to do at that point is seek somebody else out that's more mature, confess my own sin to them, and say, now there's another brother or sister that's struggling too. Will you go with me? Because I've had to deal with this myself. And when I saw it in him, I saw it myself. So I've had to deal with it. Go with me, please. And so, this fourth principle of confrontation is that we should do it with humility. The last principle of confrontation is that it should be grounded in the Word. And I think this is critical. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, there's the concept of confrontation, for reproof, for correction, that's also part of confrontation, and for training in righteousness, that's also part of confrontation. Remember, the goal isn't just to call out bad behavior, tell them what's right. One of my professors in seminary said, there's a way to paraphrase this, when he says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, he says it tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. He even had hand motions with it. I won't do the hand motions. But the Word of God tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. And so, he tells Timothy that. Then he goes on, he says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But listen, he goes on, for I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the Word... Why? Because it's good for telling you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. So preach the word. But then he says this, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So in other words, what he's just done is he's laid out for Timothy. Use the word when you confront, when you reprove, when you rebuke, when you exhort, when you instruct. So what does that mean for us when it comes to confrontation? Well, it means that this last principle is that our confrontation should always be grounded in the Word. I think this is critical. The Word of God is what gives us not only our authority to confront another over sin, but it defines what kind of behavior is sin. It defines what kind of behavior should replace that sin. Without that, how do we know what we should confront how we should confront or what the expectation should be when that individual repents. You know, as a practical matter, and I had to learn this because I'm somebody who's very black and white. I have a lot of opinions, as you might expect. Some of you probably know that about me. Some transparency time, I often think I'm more right than I am wrong. 
Doesn't mean I am. I'm just saying how I feel. All right? If, you, if any of you see my Facebook posts, you know that I'm not shy about telling others how I think or feel and sometimes get a little... I try to be funny about it, a little snarky sometimes and use um, forms of communicating that maybe draw attention to stuff. But when it comes to confronting another believer over sin, my rule has always been, if I can't tie that to a passage of Scripture, I should probably be really careful before approaching them. Because I have no authority to confront simply because I disagree, or because I don't like something, or because you hurt my feelings. So what I try to do is to say, well, here's the passage of Scripture that I can now go to that individual with and say, I think we have a problem here. This is what the Word of God says. I think that's something that is probably missing the majority of the time when believers confront other believers. I think oftentimes it's something we do out of emotion, we do out of hurt, we do out of anger, we do out of arrogance and pride. But it really ought to be the word that drives us to that. I mentioned the conversation I had with this friend of mine in the car as I was driving down to Dayton over that very issue about if you can't find it in the scripture, you have to be very careful. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't approach others. If somebody does something offensive to us, maybe, you know, you got a roommate and they don't keep the place clean. It's not like I can go to the scriptures and go, well, it says here, clean your room. You know, I got principles about slothfulness and other things and being generous and good to other people. That doesn't mean I can't approach somebody about it. But if you're going to call them out for sin, you better make sure that you can tie it to some kind of principle in the scripture. And you ought to be able to open up the word and say, because when they push back and you go, oh, it's just how I feel, now you've got a problem. But if you can open the word and say, well, let's look at what the word says. You know, in Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, David says that it's the word of God that can reveal the heart. Plain and simple. Which means when we approach somebody and we have as our tool what the word says, then who's doing the confronting? Now you have to look at me and say, don't kill the messenger. I'm just a messenger. But you've got the authority to do that. But you also recognize that it's not your words trying to convince them. It's, well, this is what the word says. I'm simply here to help you understand this. I'm here to help us walk through this. I want to see restoration. So it's not me, it's the Word of God. And so really, this last principle, that confrontation ought to be anchored in the Word. Not just the idea of we have authority to confront, but I'm confronting you over this because this passage says this, or this principle says this, and we can turn to that and we can look at it. And now what you've got is the sword of the Holy Spirit doing the work. Not just you trying to convince them. So... The other thing it does is it keeps me accountable because now I'm in the Word and maybe it'll apply to me too. It also reminds me that the Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to be doing the convicting. So what do we have here? Well, there's a need and an obligation to confront. There's obviously goals and the primary goal of confrontation is restoration. And then lastly, there's a correct and biblical way to confront and we saw these five principles laid out. There's probably others in the Scriptures. These are just five of my, five that came to mind for me as I've been studying I'm going to close with one final example of somebody who... I, I give you an example of somebody who confronted me in what I believe was an unbiblical manner on multiple levels. But I've got another example of where I think it was done appropriately and it had a major impact on my life. When I was in seminary, um, I loved ac- academics. 
And so I, I love analysis. And so some of my favorite stuff was when we were given projects to analyze maybe what somebody taught or what they believed or some of the exegesis courses where we would have to um, write papers and examine. And we would have to quote all these other authors. So if you have a passage of scripture you're working through, you've got a quote from people who have a different opinion. And then you have to analyze what they had said. And I don't remember what the topic was or what the passage was, but I was um, instructed to do that in one of my classes. And um, so I went ahead and I did the paper. And uh, most of the papers back then were 20, 30 pages, and they were highly technical. Um, and you got graded on how well you would argue and debate and stuff. Well, my professor, Roger Pugh, very gracious, godly man, asked me to come up to his office one time. And it was after I had written a paper, and he had graded it, and he didn't return it to me. Normally they just put it in your mailbox. Huh. So I went and sat in his office and said, I want to talk to you about something. And so he began to talk to me about, about um, the time in seminary and the work that I had done. And he had a lot of very positive, encouraging things to say about the kind of work that I did. But I could tell there was something on his mind. And what he brought up was, in my papers as I would write, I was not always kind. I was not gentle. I was often very um, pointed. And I wouldn't say that I did name-calling, but I would make comments about the authors that I was quoting that got to their motives and other things that I had no way of really knowing. And so he called me out on that. He said, this is not Christ-like behavior. He's like, content is fine. The paper's fine. But the way that you write is not kind is not gentle and comes across as very arrogant and prideful. And I had to either listen to that or argue with him and say he was wrong. (laughs) And I listened to it. And I had to then learn to change the way that I was writing my papers. That was the right way to confront. His goal was not to punish me. He could have just given me a bad grade on the paper and said, boy, I can't believe the way you talk to these people. But his whole point was to restore and to help me to understand if you're going to go out into the ministry, you need to learn to address the opposition. And I struggle with that even to this day to some degree. You know, you know I mention names sometimes from the pulpit and I try to be kind. I don't always agree. But, and you know, even Jesus himself, you know, when he called people whitewashed tombs, there's a time where it's appropriate for certain things. But, you know, he was also the son of God, you know. But that was an example of somebody who confronted me over something that needed to change. And he was able, he talked, he took me to some passages of scripture and said, look at what Paul says here. Look at what Jesus said here. Does this reflect what you're doing in your papers? And I had to admit, no, it did not. And ultimately, the end result was what it should have been.